Hi, everybody. This is Bob Castle with the Castles, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. My name is Robert Miller, and I'm your host. My guest today is Bruce Bellin of the Four Preps, America's first boy band. Their 1958 million-selling hit, 26 Miles Across the Sea, made them into international pop stars. That song influenced Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys and inspired Jimmy Buffett. Can you believe it? The Preps, as they were known, were featured on the Ed Sullivan Show, and they had a recurring part on the Ozzie and Harriet Show, which we got to talk about. 26 Miles was followed by Big Man and several other hit singles. In total, they had eight gold singles and three gold albums. They even co-starred in the movie Gidget with Sandra D. How about that? And they were inducted into the Vocal Group Hall of Fame in 2007. Bruce went on to have other adventures and successes in the music business as well. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all of my musical guests, Bruce and I are going to do a song fest. We're going to play a handful of those great hits by the four preps. And we'll talk about them and you'll get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And you know that I like to feature a song of mine in every episode of the podcast. And I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I've chosen the song Around the Horn from the Made in New York album by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this? Well, Bruce and the four preps went 26 miles across the sea, and I went around the horn. So we both had a nautical adventure. <laughs> so, Bruce Bellin, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you, my man. I've looking, been looking forward to this. I know a little bit about your background. I think we're going to talk the same language, probably know a lot of the same people, as a matter of fact. But I'm looking forward to it. I hope we talk the same language. Okay, so we started off, I told you, I read your biography, and I want you to know, everybody, Bruce has got the longest biography in the history of biographies, <laughs> but it's an entertaining biography. It's like reading a novel, okay? <laughs> and you've done so many things. And, you know, I wanted to start kind of early on because you went to Hollywood High, and I read that two of your classmates were Mike Farrell and Sally Kellerman. Right. And then you met these two kids named David and Ricky Nelson. Am I right? Right. So tell me about how you established the relationship there. Yeah. When I first met David, he was naked. <laughs> he was standing next to me at, in, in the gym next to his locker. He had the locker next to mine in the gym. And he was getting ready to go out and play B football. I was on the track team. So it's funny to meet a celebrity you've seen on TV standing there with no clothes on. But that's we became fast friends. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, look, for anybody that doesn't know, Ozzie and Harriet was the television show back in the day. 
and David and Ricky Nelson were the two kids on the show. David was the older one, right? Right. Okay. And Ricky became a pop star in and of himself. Boy, did he ever. So tell me about the relationship there. You obviously started it in high school, but it developed from there, huh? It very much developed from there. You know, then we were just kids at Hollywood High, both listening to Top 40 music and, you know, having dreams about it. But it really solidified once the four preps became regulars on the show, because between numbers, I should say, between shots, between scenes, we'd sit around on the set and sing. And we got a really nice simpatico going. We blended well. We loved the same kind of music. So what had begun as sort of a pipe dream in high school suddenly started to look like a reality. And then he signed with Imperial Records. And uh, we did a couple of his songs uh, on the show. And the fan mail came pouring in about, wow, we like the preps. And Ricky, this is great. And we were off and running. And then we went, finally, after he had a couple of hits, we took up on our first tour. And barely escape with our lives because by then he was a teen idol and we were getting mobbed, getting our clothes torn out. But we became really close on the road and in the studio. Music was the solidifying uh, element in, in our relationship. We had a bungalow right next to the uh, set where we would go and there were guitars and drums and pianos and, and record players. And we'd sit around all day listening to Chuck Berry and so forth. So it, it, it coerced into, into a real friendship, particularly with me. Ricky and I both had daughters born 10 days apart, named Tracy. And uh, yeah, he, became, he was a friend for years, and we sort of lost touch when uh, he became Rick instead of Ricky. <laughs> well, listen, for anybody that doesn't know or remember, as you just said, Bruce, Ricky Nelson, Rick Nelson, was a huge pop star. I mean, he was an idol, a, a teenage idol back in the day. Yeah. And uh, that show, of course, made him into an... I think he used to sing a song basically in every episode, didn't he? It was the darndest thing, Robert, because we the show would be about Ozzy going bowling with all his buddies or something. <laughs> and at the end of the show, totally unrelated to this, the show you just saw, he would come on saying, I'm a traveler. And as a matter of fact, I've heard musicologists say that Ozzy really created the first music video, if you will. He did a video of Traveling Man with Ricky on the beach in Waikiki and in Mexico and Alaska. So it was rather unheard of at that time to do that elaborate a video about uh, a pop record. So there was a lot of history made on that show. Isn't that interesting? And I remember that episode about Ozzy going bowling. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's go back further. Let's talk about the four preps. You're in high school or just after high school. Tell us how the band came together. Well, there was a talent show every year at Hollywood High, which was very heavily attended by talent scouts. And all the so many kids went to Hollywood High with aspirations to be in show business. Several of them, actually, their families moved into the district for Hollywood High so they could go to Hollywood High, knowing that it was the birthplace of a lot of great careers. There was a talent show every year. The year I was a senior, 35 girls showed up to audition. No boys. The school bulletin the next day said, there's got to be some guys out there that can do something. So I went to Glenn Larson, who I'd known since grammar school. I said, Glenn, 35 girls, no guys. Come on, let's get on this. So we picked two guys from the choir. We learned Shaboom overnight off the record. Auditioned the next day, got in the show, and absolutely stole the show. I mean, there were ballerinas and people playing the flute and so forth. We got on with Shaboom, Shaboom, and they went nuts. So that was sort of the start. About a year after we graduated, we were performing all over town with the Righteous Brothers who were you know, wannabes and 
Richie Valens and a lot of guys trying to make it. And um, a talent scout from uh, Capitol Records, a producer, heard us, signed us to a contract. We became the youngest uh, group ever signed to a major record label at the time. So we've been called America's first boy band. And uh, in terms of uh, chronological history, I guess we were. Isn't that interesting? You know, that era is such a different era than today, of course. When they signed you to Capitol Records, was it a long-term deal or was it just a one-off for that first record? Well, uh, kind of a little of each. It was a seven-year contract with, with six options after the first year. On their part, I assume. Yeah, they could have dropped this at, at you know, any time uh, at the end of each year when they considered what happened. In, we did the first year, we put out eight records, Robert. I mean, it was a joke. We did doo-wop, we did Brazilian, we did reggae, we did power ballads. We could not get a hit to save us. Well, the first year option was coming up for the second year, and we were quite sure. Our manager was an old pro. He managed Les Paul and Mary Ford, among others. He said, guys, I'm not sure Capital's going to pick this up. It could all be over. Well, in the 12th month of that first year, along came 26 miles and saved our career. We ended up being with Capital for 13 more years. Isn't that great? Okay, you know, you just led into it really, really well. Let's play a little bit of 26 Miles Across the Sea, parentheses, Catalina Island. This was your big, big hit. 26 miles across the sea. Santa Catalina is awaiting for me. Santa Catalina, the island of romance. Romance, romance, romance. Water all around me, everywhere. Tell us about this, because you're a co-writer of that song, right? That's correct, yeah. All right, so give me the backstory. How did this come about? Well, I, I was born in Chicago, and for the first 10 years of my life, lived in Chicago. I was a diehard Chicago Cubs fan. I would go to the newsreel at age 9 and 10, and I would see the Cubs working out while it's snow drifts outside in Chicago in March. There they were on this island called Catalina in the sunlight with short sleeve shirts and cute girls on the bench waving. And I thought, what are, Catalina, what is this place? My, this is paradise. I can't believe it. It's snowing outside. And they got palm trees in the background. And I moved, to, my family moved to West Hollywood. I enrolled in Hollywood High, cut school one day, was on the beach. And somebody said, wow, look, you can see Catalina out there, 26 miles from here. And I picked up the guitar, the ukulele. I always had my ukulele with me. It was a chip magnet, you know. And I started 26 miles up. So I wrote most of the song then. And then when we hadn't had a hit for a while, we kept begging Capital to listen to our song. They said, you're not a songwriter. Perry Como, Eddie Fisher, they don't write their song. We'll find a hit for it. Well, of course, they didn't. We kept trying stuff. I said, please let us record 26 miles. Our producer agreed. And he began to see what actually happened is we sang. Of, I was dating Nancy Sinatra at the time. She went to uni high. We went to a meeting of their girls club. And after it broke up, we were hanging around. We got our guitars out. And we sang 26 miles for them. Fade out, fade in a week later in, in uh, Westwood. I run into Nancy in line for a movie. She says, when are you guys going to record that song? When you sang us? I said, we sang you a lot of songs. Just that one Catalina. And she sang a little 26 miles. So I went to our producer at Capitol Theater. Frank Sinatra's 
daughter loves this song and her whole girls club loves it and they're going to buy it can we please put it out well robert it was a b-side i've i've got the ad in my book it's a b-side the capital the 26 miles title was so small you literally had to get a magnifying glass to see it under the main title for the a-side which was a terrible song from the music man thank god a disc jockey in hartford connecticut was on late at night. He wanted to go to the men's room. So after he played the first side, which is Capital Aspen to, he just turned it over for the heck of it and went up the hall of the men's room. And when he came back, the song was just finishing and the flashboard, the dash, uh, I'm sorry, switchboard was going crazy. What is that record? We just heard it. Who's that? Thank goodness he was smart enough and resourceful enough to call the Capitol Tower the next morning. You don't know me. I'm Joe Schmo from Hartford, Connecticut. I'm an all-night disc jockey. Yeah, yeah. You're on the wrong side of the record. Thank goodness they listened to him, which they didn't always do at Capitol. And they turned it over, said to their field men, hey, it's the other side, B side, let's go. And there you go. It's funny. I've heard that story now two or three times on this podcast from different guys back in that era where a song was put out, not as the A side, but as the B side. And a disc jockey somewhere in the middle of nowhere decided that it was the other side that was the big hit. And that's what they went with. Exactly. You said you used to date Nancy Sinatra. And I had this image in my mind of going up to her house to pick her up. And Frank Sinatra is there. <laughs> and you must have been scared to death, okay? Who would want to go up to Frank Sinatra and tell him you're taking out his daughter? Well, you know, when I when I say date her, it wasn't like I went to her house and she and I went out alone. We We knew each other at parties. There were 10 or 12 or 15 of us guys and gals, mainly those from her club. I met her through another girl in her club that I was dating. And when I say we went out, we were out in, in mass. We didn't, you know, we weren't boy, boyfriend and girlfriend. We just hung in the same group and went out and had fun in, in Westwood, which was her hangout at the time. I feel much better now because otherwise I was worried about your life. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to face Frank if I got her home <laughs> late. I, <laughs> exactly right. That's a dangerous liaison, as they say. All right. So you you had this big hit with 26 Miles. You had several other hits. You went on tour and you went on tour with people like George Burns and Bob Hope. Am I right about that? Yeah. Tell us about some of that. Well, George Burns became my uh, my show business godfather. He mentored me after a show each night in Vegas. He would have me come in his dressing room, pour me a Coca-Cola. And we sit down. He said, now that number you do where the big guy does the so-and-so and you do the so-and-so with the line, you're saying the line too soon. Wait another two beats and it'll get a bigger laugh. Well, the next night I waited two beats because I know he'd be in the ring watching. And the place exploded with laughter. I couldn't believe two beats would make that much difference. I think, Robert, it's called comedy timing. <laughs> so timing became a factor he worked with me on. Why a joke? He had a wonderful expression. No joke. Every joke would be funnier, shorter. You're talking to a guy who wrote a 29-page bio, so making it short was didn't come <laughs> naturally. And Bob Hope, I watched Bob Hope time and again. Something untoward, unexpected would happen on stage. He had lived his way right through it, turned mud into chocolate every time, got all kinds of laughs. There was such an education traveling with these these deans of the show business. And I was such a curious kid from a time at four I wanted to be in show business. I studied everything. I listened to every move, learned everything, just soaked it up. It was a great experience learning with those wonderful icons. 
you know, guys like that, they, they don't exist anymore. It was an no. era that produced stars of that magnitude. And you're right, guys like George Burns, Bob Hope, I mean, they were just wonderful entertainers, stars. Everything about them was remarkable. Yeah, yeah. So it must have been something else to be on tour with them and to pick up, you know, as you said, from from their education. Yeah, I got a picture on my wall that George gave me at the end of our tour. Said, Bruce, I really enjoyed it. Love George. <laughs> I enjoyed it too, George. <laughs> Good for you. That's terrific. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller. Live at Steel Stacks is the new five-song EP by my band, Project Grand Slam. It absolutely captures the band at the top of our game. Musicians and reviewers alike have praised the recording, saying things like captivating music, Project Grand Slam burns down the house, virtuoso musicians, and such a great band. You can stream live at Steel Stacks on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or any of the other streaming platforms. And you can download it from the PGS store. The links are all in the show notes to this episode. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so yet. You can do so and you can listen to our 100 plus episodes just by going to our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. So join me each episode as we go on a world tour to my listeners in 200 countries. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. Okay, I want to go to the next song that you had as a big hit with the four preps, and that's Big Man. So tell us a little bit about that one. We were on tour in Oklahoma City. Our men, our producer at Capitol called and said, hey, you guys are in the top 10 next week. 26 miles is a smash. Wow, that's great. We go out and celebrate. He said, before you get too crazy about this, you better get ready to write a, a follow-up because it's going to start to drop as every record does, and you better have a killer record ready. So quit congratulating yourselves and get to work. So Glenn and I went to our motel room after each show that night in Oklahoma City. And we wanted to figure out which of our two rooms to write in. Well, we noticed my room number was 126. Well, of course, we wrote in that room. And the big expression at the time was big man. He's a big man on campus. So we came up with big man. How do we turn that into big man? Boy, you are man, boy, boy, you ought to see me now. The piano introduction is iconic. It's been cited time and time again by musicologists and disc jockeys as really a unique piano introduction. One disc jockey called it the biggest piano in the world. It was three or four piano tracks overdubbed, like two or three pianists playing at the same time, one of whom was our arranged conductor, Lincoln. And it got that big, boomy sound, which we wanted, and came out. 
it actually, Robert, it actually sold out, outsold 26 miles uh, internationally. It was a big number one hit in England. So go figure. <laughs> you, can, you can't go better than to have a follow-up hit that does better than the original hit. Okay. That's what everybody wants. Yeah, he said the the, the the business is littered with one hit wonders. You got a yep. second one, you're on your way. Well, thank God we did. All right. Well, let's talk about a third and a fourth because we're going to play now a little bit of Lazy Summer Night. It's such a lazy summer night. There's not a moving thing inside. Give us the story on that one. Well, we were looking for a follow-up to Big Man, and both 26 Out and Big Man had been kind of simple four or five chord sing-along songs. And we wanted to show, because we love to sing harmony, we wanted to show that we could sing smooth, rich, clean harmony on a ballad. We looked and looked and couldn't find one. Somehow the word got out to MGM. They had a new movie coming out with Mickey Rooney in which Lazy Summer Night was the love theme. And they sent it to Capitol for us to listen to. We said, oh, yeah, that's what we're looking for. And we recorded it. It was not as big as 26 Miles and Big Man, but it was a big enough hit to be a legitimate, you know, top 10 record. Uh, I love that song. I love that it shows we can sing that smooth harmony in addition to the, you know, kind of rock stuff that we uh, did earlier. Well, you know, on 26 Miles, what everybody remembers is when you sang Romance those four times throughout the song. Yes. Because that's what gave the song that that flair, that that love flair that I'm sure the girls must have gone wild over. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I had a psychologist tell me once, if you could only pick one word to repeat in a song, romance, 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 romance would be a good choice. <laughs> there you go. Romance, romance, romance. Romance. You hit the lottery with that one. Good for <laughs> you. All right, let's do one more song. The next one that you had as a big hit was Down by the Station. Down by the station, early in the morning, met a little girl about as cute as she could be. I turned on my charms and told her that I loved her, said that she would always be the number one for me. So tell us about that. Well, we began to realize that part of what people expected from the preps was songs that they could sing along with, songs that they kind of felt they knew or were simple melodies they could quickly learn. Uh, so we began shopping around and we had done a, in some album cuts some of the old folk songs and kind of modernized them with new lyrics and stuff. Somehow the uh, title Dama the Station came up and Glenn and I reworked it and put a story in. I, I'm convinced, Robert, one of the reasons it was a hit is because we give the girl the last word. Because Interesting. down at the station, you weren't true to them, sir. You won't be true to me. Catch yourself a trolley car that goes into the sea. And I had more girls tell me, I love it. I love the way <laughs> she got even with this guy. <laughs> See that? You were smart as can be to do it that way. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. All right. You got to tell me you were in the movie Gidget with Sandra D. What 
in the world is a Gidget. It's a girl, a cuddling, befuddling teen, who set out to find her a man of her own and found seven. Seven young beachcombers with a single thought, to enjoy life and love without working. Meet Kahuna, their leader, and Waikiki, Stinky, Lord Byron. That must have been awesome. Tell us about that. Well, it was great. I mean, there were so many, you know, uh, Cliff Robertson was a wonderful gentleman, uh, Jimmy Darren, uh, Sandra, of course, I had a huge crush on her. And the second or third day in the set, I tried to charm her, fell flat in my face. Did you tell her that you went out with Nancy Sinatra? Is that, did that charm her enough? <laughs> I should have used that. I didn't think of that one. Where were you when I needed you? <laughs> Anyhow, it was just from day one, there was, Guys on that uh, on that set just playing extras, beach guys, you know, surfers. Right. And one was named Tom McLaughlin, who went on Tom Laughlin, who went on to make a great movie called The Ode of Billy Jack. Uh, another fellow, I can't remember his name now, became the producer for all nine years of MASH, the television series. So a lot of kids that were up and coming in the business on that set. And it was a ball. The director was a wonderful guy named Paul Wenko, who I became friends with later in life. And uh, that whole experience, if you're going to get to make one movie in your life, that would be the one I'd choose. You know, back in that era, you had these beach movies, okay, that became the rage. And this was one of them. Gidget, I mean, was, was one of those kind of beachy type movies. And of course, Sandra D had a renaissance because she was in that song from Greece. Okay. Oh it, yeah. You know, kind of resurrected her career, if you will. Look at me, I'm Sandra D. Lousy with virginity. Won't go to bed till I'm legally wed. I can't. I'm Sandra D. I, I forget exactly. Was it Olivia Newton-John that sang that song, or one of the yes. you know, actors or actresses from so. Greece? It was fantastic. So, <laughs> and I know my my wife loves Sandra D. So you hit a, a nerve there with that one. Oh, I did too. She was a sweetie. I never quite recovered from making that dumb attempt to charm her, but she was sweet, and and we had a great that movie was a great experience. Great experience. All right. So you had quite a career with the four preps. I mean, it lasted for quite some time. Tell us about what happened afterwards. What'd you do after that? Well, the four preps originally, the original four disbanded in 1969. We'd been a hit together for, and with Capital for 13 years. The other guys in the group were already having successes in other fields. Glenn Larson was writing TV scripts and selling shows. And Ed Cobb had written several big hits and was producing a lot of big bands. Marv Ingram, the fourth member, was sort of the quiet man. He was a, he became a stockbroker. Well, when I broke up, when the preps disbanded in 69, David Somerville from the Diamonds had joined the preps in that last year when our original base had Cobb departed and he and I developed a rapport. So when the preps disbanded, it was very amicable disbanding. We just said, okay, this has been great. Goodbye. He and I, David Somerville and I formed a comedy folk duo and did a lot of television. We debuted on the tonight show and we did 33 guest shots in the first six months as a team because we did comedy and and music. In fact, Henry Mancini called us the righteous smothers. <laughs> and uh, that was a great career for three or four years. We traveled with a lot of big acts, Johnny Mathis, Henry Mancini, Glenn Campbell, Brazil 66, D 
Dionne Warwick. And then I was uh, also at the time writing freelance commercials. Uh, having been familiar with the college market, uh, I got hired to do a lot of college-oriented campaigns for Chevrolet, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Volkswagen. And I was directing some Chevy commercials, still performing with David off and on. And I was directing some Chevy commercials at NBC. A studio executive ran into me in the commissary. We got talking. He said, if you're ever interested in coming aboard as a programming executive with your background, we'd love to, love to have it come on. I thought about it for about 15 minutes. I said, okay, what do I do next? Interview with my boss in New York, 30 Rock. And the whole thing, next thing I knew, I had a parking place at NBC Burbank, about three spaces from Johnny Carson. I had a big corner office. I had a secretary. I didn't know how to dictate anything with secretary. I'm a singer. But I learned the ropes and, you know, BS my way, kind of climbing the corporate ladder at, uh, at NBC when Ralph Edwards, uh, the impresario of so many great television shows, approached me. He said, I'm looking for an heir apparent to come on board and take over my company. I really would like you to think about that. He made an offer. I called to NBC. They countered. I said, I think I want to do this. I'm tired of being a network suit behind a desk and not being involved in the act production of a show. I don't want to be an executive. I want to be a producer. Went to uh, Ralph's, produced four or five shows over a five-year period, ending up about a thousand, little over a thousand hours of programming. And I had a great time, got a couple Emmy nominations, never won, but it was a great career. And then in 1989, after 20 years having disbanded, Dick Clark talked Ed Cobb and me in the reforming the four preps and going out. And that lasted another 10 years with that new formation of the group with Jim Pike of the Letterman, who was then replaced by Jim Yester of the Association and Ed Cobb, our original base and Diamond Dave Somerville. And uh, that was a great foursome. And we had a great, we traveled all over the world, did TV and stuff. It was just great fun. And in 99, Ed Cobb got very seriously ill and that group disbanded and I went on to do other things. You had one heck of a career. And now everybody can tell why you have the world's longest biography because you just <laughs> went on and on, but everything was filled with stars and accomplishments and everything. It has truly been an honor to be speaking with you. We have been talking here with Bruce Bell. And Bruce, I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. My pleasure, man. Next time I want to ask you about your career. Anybody that becomes a rock star after 60, I was told in rock and roll, they shot every rock star when they turned 50. I'm, I'm glad you survived. That's why I hid out for a few decades, because this way they wouldn't <laughs> shoot at me. All right. Thank you so much. We are going to listen now to that song that started off the episode. It's my song called Around the Horn. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.